This is great. We love to do this. We come together for, for this purpose. You could be doing anything else today, uh, but you've come here to be together with God's people and to worship Him. I'm thrown off, Sue, because I'm watching uh, Jimmy Carter's um, Sunday school class right now uh, for some reason on my computer. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, everybody. President Carter is a great Sunday school teacher. Very old, uh, but still sharp as can be. So, Okay, well, our passage uh, today is Colossians 2, 1 through 7. Colossians 2, 1 through 7. Just going to start out reading, reading the passage. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in the body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The last time we, were, we spoke together, we were in Colossians chapter 1, and we talked about reconciliation in Christ, Colossians chapter 1. And just to review that, I think we talked, I think we were in uh, uh, verses 15 through 20 verses 15 through 20 of, of Colossians 1. And the theme of that was reconciliation. When we, the, the end of our passage the last time was Colossians 1.20, and it said, through him to reconcile himself to himself all things. So the Lord Jesus Christ, the purpose of him coming was to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth and heaven, to everything, everywhere, every time, making peace by the blood of his cross. And we talked about the idea of reconciliation and making peace and how those, those two words go together often in God's word, that the peace, Christ came to make peace between man and God because we were at enmity with God. That means we were enemies with God. The only way to, to break down the wall of hostility was through the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ makes peace, and it reconciles us to God. And in our own studies, we've been moving along uh, and to finish up the first chapter of Colossians. And we saw in Colossians 1.22 that he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So we see that the, the, what reconciliation looks like is that the Lord Jesus Christ, through his body and death on the cross, through the blood of Christ, he presents us holy and blameless and above reproach to God. God sees in us Christ. When we go to God, that great white throne judgment is a terrible and awful thing to think about. But it's also a glorious thing to think about, to go before the throne of God 
and to have God evaluate you. Evaluate your life. I'm a, I'm a professor. I, I do a lot of evaluating. You think you'd get an A? Yeah, maybe some people, well, I might get a B. You know, I'm pretty good. I have a little couple of foibles here and there, but maybe a B. Or maybe a C. Or a D. Well, no, that's not how it works. You see, we come to God, and when he evaluates us, if he were to really truly evaluate us, in our heart, we would get an F. Because there's nothing good in us. The Bible tells us that none are righteous, no, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray. The natural man cannot seek God. He's not even able to seek God. The natural man has, is at enmity with God. So you see, we're evaluated. This is an amazing thing. We're evaluated on Christ's righteousness. Have you ever thought about that? The great white throne judgment day, when God evaluates you, what does he see? He sees Christ. And, and that's, that's the only thing that we have to offer. Okay? It's the only thing we have to offer God, is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ presents us holy and blameless and above reproach because he's holy and blameless and above reproach. And by virtue of being in Christ, we share those attributes of Christ before God. Thank the Lord for that. So as we review reconciliation, we think of what Christ has done in his body on the tree, and we come to chapter 2, and we read passage um, verses 1 through 7. And I want to title this uh, passage, The Results of Reconciliation. The Results of Reconciliation. And uh, since I'm a pastor, I need to alliterate. So I've titled the five points of the results of reconciliation, the strenuous struggle, the godly goal, the transcendent treasure, the fruitful faithfulness, and the wonderful walk. So as we, as we go through our passage in Colossians chapter 2, I think we're going to see these five points, and I'd just like to bring out just a few comments on each of these five points. First of all, we ended Colossians chapter 1 with a wonderful passage, one that I've memorized, and uh, I encourage you to. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom, we proclaim Christ. Him we proclaim. And that proclamation is, 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 is composed of two things, warning and teaching. So when we proclaim Christ, when we proclaim Christ to others, when we proclaim, proclaim Christ to our families, um, we proclaim two things. We, we, that, that manifests itself in two ways. We teach of who Christ is, and we warn uh, people of what it means to not be in Christ and of the wages of sin. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone. For this I toil. For this I toil, Paul says. Uh, Toil, struggle. We'll talk a little bit about that word. For this I toil. Working with all the energy that he energizes me with. My own translation of the end of Colossians chapter 1. So we start Colossians chapter 2 with the idea of this struggle, this toil 
that was talked about in, in, in the passage right before. And really, uh, chapter 2 is almost an extension of, uh, of chapter 1. So first of all, let's talk about the struggle of Colossians chapter 1. What is the struggle? Well, first let's just read the passage. It says, um, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those of Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. Okay, that's verse 1. So, so let's just break this down. And what I like to do when I read the Bible, I encourage you to do this. I, I quiz myself about what the passage says. Who, what, when, where, why, and then I apply. Who, what, when, where, why, and then apply. You throw a how in there. But, but, but basically you, 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 you quiz the passage with these questions and then figure out how does that apply to us. So let's figure out, let's, let's do this. Who, what, when, where, apply. First of all, who is the Who? Okay, this is uh, well, going to be an open discussion now. So I'm going to ask some questions, and, and you all have to answer, uh, or it'll take a long time. So um, who is the who in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 1? Who's doing the struggling? Hannah? Hmm? Paul, right. Paul's doing the struggling. I, I being Paul, right? Well, that's true. Um, and, and what is the struggle? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a hint on this one. The, the word for struggle in the Greek is the word um, agona. Agona. Does that sound like an English word that anybody knows? Agona? Agony. Right? It's where we get our word for agony. And the actual, um, uh, Alex can relate to this. Alex is a, uh, a brag on my son-in-law here. He's a national championship, went to the national championship, and he should have won. The guy cheated or he would have won. Uh, I don't know. He didn't really cheat. Well, he kind of did. He kept running out of the mat. There's forgiveness, but Alex uh, went, to the, went to the national championship in, uh, in college wrestling as a heavyweight, and uh, I've watched his matches on YouTube, and I uh, just, uh, you know, wonder uh, how, how terrible it would be to be the other guy, you know, and I'm really glad he's on my side, and so I'm thankful for that, but uh, actually the word agona, uh, ag- agona in, in the Greek means athletic, uh, an athletic match, and uh, it, it actually is... In, in the ancient Greek is referred to, wrestling matches are referred to as agona. And when you see Alex and uh, have him wrestle with somebody, you see why. Boys, who wants to try him? Anybody want to try him right now? A three, four, five on one? Yeah, well, you know, it would be, it would be agony indeed, right? Now, uh, Alex, how many minutes is a wrestling match? Six minutes. Six minutes. Well, that's not very long, is it? It probably seems like just about six minutes, right? It seems longer. It seems longer. Why is that? Yeah. I used to wrestle. I just, you know, I, I, I wrestled. I mean, I, you know, I went to the city meet and thought that was a big deal, right? But in high school, and it is, that's a long six minutes. Anybody ever wrestle in here? Anybody wrestle? It's a very long six minutes, isn't it? Yeah, it's in two-minute stretches, and, and you give everything you, you have, and, and by the end, you're completely spent. And so that's the word that Paul's using. That's the what, the, the struggle and that's the same word that he uses in, the, in, the, uh, um, in, in chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1. For this I toil. For what does he toil? To make them mature in Christ. The, the, the whole point of the, the passage before was teaching and warning everybody to make them mature in Christ, to present them to God mature in Christ. For this I toil, says Paul. The word for toil is agona. We see it again. He says, kind of re, reiterating things. I want you to know, Paul's saying to the... Uh, to the Colossians, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. That this is really, this, this, I'm going to the mat, basically, is what he's saying. I'm going to the mat for you. I'm giving everything I have for you. 
And not just you, but the ones in Laodicea and those who haven't seen me face to face. Now, just to put ourselves back in the situation here, uh, the, the church at Colossae uh, was one of the churches in, 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 in basically in Turkey, um, Asia Minor. And uh, the church at Laodicea was nearby, wasn't too far away. Kind of reminds me of Grace and Gethsemane, you know, just some churches that were in fellowship with one another. And he's saying, you know, I, I'm, struggling for, I'm struggling for God's people, for you, for them, for everybody around, for those who haven't even met me, I'm struggling. So the, the question is when, well, this happened in, in first century Palestine. Where? It happened in Colossae, Laodicea, Turkey. Why? Why? Why did this happen? Well, I think the why gives us, uh, gets us to the second verse, um, of, of the goal, what was his goal, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But for, before we do that, I want to apply a little bit. First of all, I don't think God's given us this. I don't think he's given us his word and inspired by the Holy Spirit just so we have a cool history book of what Paul did in Turkey 2,000 years ago. I think there's more to it than that. I think God gives us his word. He tells us why he gives us his word. Anybody know? Second uh, Timothy 3.16, what's the scripture? All scripture is inspired by God and, 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 and profitable for... Yeah, profitable for instruction and righteousness. Yeah. Yeah. Edification, right? Teaching, training and righteousness. Right. So God gives us his word for a reason. So the reason here, uh, I think that we have this account, is so we see what it looks like for a Christian to live in a reconciled world. God's reconciled us to himself. What does that mean to you? Uh, as a father, as a, as a, as a, as a mother, as a, as a child, as a wife, uh, as, a, as a team leader at work, or whatever you do, what does that mean to be reconciled? I think it means to this, that we struggle, we spend our energy on God's people. And some people don't know they're God's people yet, and that's who we're after, right? Um, I think Jay Vernon McGee one time said, uh, if, if he knew who God's people were, it'd be really easy. If they were marked with a red stripe on their back, he could just pull up the back of their shirt and see if it's one of God's people. He'd know exactly who to preach to. But we don't know who to preach to. We don't ultimately know who God's people are going to be, so we proclaim him to everybody, right? And as we do that, this is what it looks like. We, we struggle for them. We struggle for them. And so I think that by application, we can apply this to ourselves, that we should do that same kind of struggle. Also, we should realize that there are those who struggle for us. I know a guy right now sitting in a firehouse who spends a lot of time on his knees uh, for you folks. And... Um, you know, I think we should appreciate that, like what people do in our lives. Children, we should appreciate what our, our parents, the prayers, you would not know, children, the prayers that your parents have for you. Um, trust me, uh, they're praying for you. They're struggling. They're, they're, it's like an athletic event for them. Con- they're concerned for your souls. Uh, and that's, that's the way that, that characterizes the Christian life. So we move to the second uh, thing is the goal, the godly goal. And this is really the why of verse 1. The why of verse 1. This is the goal. The goal is comfort and encouragement. So we read verse 2. Um, I struggle, why? That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. That's a big, huge verse there, and we're going to unpack that. First of all, the main goal, the goal is that their hearts may be encouraged. So if you look at the, uh, the Greek language here, we see some interesting things. Uh, the word for encouragement uh, is the same word. Um, anybody ever heard of the word paraclete? Paraclete? That's the word that's used for the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus said, I'll send you a helper. And so a paraclete uh, is it's an English word. It means, it means helper, advocate. It means advocate. And, and, and the, the, if you break down that word in the Greek, paraklesis, para means to come along beside 
And klesos means to summon. So really, a paraclete is somebody that summons you alongside of them. Come here, let me, let me help you. Let me shepherd you. Let me put my arm around you and be your advocate. That's a paraclete. And that's what this word is this, in, in, in verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged. So that, that, that they may be encouraged, the hearts of them. Uh, and and so, so we, that means to come alongside one another. And I just want to quickly move over to Ephesians 4.16, if you want to turn there with me, um, to give you a really good idea. This is another place where this same word is used, and it helps us understand it. Um, Paul's talking to the Ephesians, and he says, um, we are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head, Christ. And here, here's our verse. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we're going to see um, this idea of coming alongside and being encouraged uh, is actually characterized by this idea of being knit together, being knit together. And so this word for being knit together is what we see here. What does it mean to be knit together? What does it mean to be joined together? And we, we read in our passage, it says, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. What does this knit together mean? It's one of my prayers all the time when I pray with my elders, that our hearts be knit together. And I pray for you folks, that your hearts be knit together as one, as one heart, that we don't kind of keep our own kind of thing going on. They're like, well, you know, I like him, I want to work with him, but, you know, I hate that, this, you know, I hate him or something. No, we don't want to do, we want our hearts to be knit together, and that's characterized by recognizing we have Christ as our head and we're part of the body. So why should we, you know, not, uh, maybe we're an arm, why should we look at a leg and say, you know, that leg is just, man, it looks so long and hairy. You look at my nice arm, I'm so nice and, and have a bicep. That's probably a bad example. But, you know, um, yeah, we're parts of the body. Being knit together means to recognize that we're all different. And I'm going to read that passage in Ephesians again to, to think about this again. Um, From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we see this idea of, of the, the goal being comfort and encouragement. It's characterized by being knit together. It's, we're being knit together in love and into riches. What kind of riches? The riches of abundance. The word for abundance here is, is the word we get for, for plethora. In fact, the word in the Greek is plethora. That's where we get our word for plethora. In, a, in an excess, in abundance, in an overflowing of the riches is this overflowingness. And what is overflowing? It's actually our ability to understand it's the, it's the idea that God opens our minds so that we can understand. So let's read this. It's a, to reach the riches of full assurance of understanding. So if we look at that, uh, if we look at that in the Greek, the word for our understanding is really means uh, uh, our mental faculties. Okay, so we're going to talk really quick about, about some of the effects of the fall. You know, when the world fell, when Adam sinned, the whole world fell. And we fell, and we became polluted. One of the effects of the fall is that our minds become polluted, and we can't think straight anymore. That's called the noetic effect of the fall, that our minds do not think straight anymore. And so that we can't even, we can't reason correctly. So, by the way, this has some, some, some corollaries. When somebody tells you that you can come to know truth by reason, our answer to that is, well, that's not really right, because our reason is, is suspect to, to fallenness. Our reason doesn't work very well. We can only know truth by what God reveals to us. 
We can't rely on our thinking and on our reason because it is subject to the fall. What, what this passage is saying, that, that our encouragement, being knit together in love, helps us reach a new state where our mind is, is, is the, the effects of the fall are reversed and we can think straightly again. See, that's what repentance really is. Okay, think about this. That's what coming to Christ, trusting Christ really is. It's the idea that we can think straightly again. God changes our mind, lets us think straightly again, and we see, uh uh-oh, God's God, I'm not, I'm in trouble. I need Christ. See, that's a a sane mind. But our minds are, are twisted because of the fall. So what this is saying is that our comfort, which is characterized by being knit together in love, leads us into the riches uh, the abundant riches of being able to think straightly again. And that, in turn, leads us into understanding. And by the way, this word for understanding is epigenosco, epigenosis. Uh, gnosis means knowledge. And I think one of the things was going on in the background here in first century Palestine, it's going in the background today, is the idea of Gnostics. Gnostics are those who claim to have special knowledge. Um, we spent a lot of time yesterday looking, uh, researching yoga, and the idea of yoga actually means uh, to, be, to be joined to the god Brahman, uh, which is the Hindu god of the underworld, basically Satan. And uh, so this claim of having all your chakras and, and uh, you know, your energy and you know, all kind of things you do to give you this special knowledge, I mean, this was going on back then too. The Gnostics claimed that, they, that the material world was evil and, and they had this special knowledge and they could you know, sit in the lotus position and say, um, and, and kind of relieve themselves and join themselves with the cosmic God and be at one with the universe. I mean, I'm kind of mixing the two together because I think they're similar. And we fight the same thing. And this is everywhere in our society, by the way. You know, I mean, elementary school children being taught yoga. Um, and, and I was reading a... Uh, an article that the, 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 uh, there's a, the Hindu uh, Missionary Society uh, uh, about 20 years ago claimed that the way they were going to evangelize the world with Hinduism was through yoga teachers. And uh, all the moves, that, that all the, the yoga moves, they're spiritual things. They're, they're, it's, a, it's a religion, and it's designed to release yourself and your chakras so that you can become one uh, with the universe. And by the way, the whole point of that is, is there's, in, in, in this Hindu idea, you have a serpent around your spine, and if you can do all the right moves that this serpent will release itself, go through your brain and out your third eye and open you up to uh, the, uh, the universe. It doesn't sound like Christianity to me, okay? It doesn't sound like Christianity to me at all. And so this is an interesting word because the word Paul uses for, for knowledge, for understanding, is, I think, intended to, uh, to be, a, uh, to, to, to be a, a polemic to what the Gnostics were saying. So he didn't use the word Gnosis, which means knowledge, he used the word epigenosis, which is like better than knowledge. Epi means built upon knowledge, which we, from which we get the word understanding. So the Gnostics are there, the people are there, and this was going on all in the background, and it's going on today. People say, oh, you know, that's stupid uh, Christianity, but let me tell you about the real enlightenment. Paul's saying, look, your enlightenment, we, we, we can, we're going to up that, and, and, and we're talking about... Uh, Epigenosis, which is understanding. It's more than knowledge. And what is the knowledge of? It's of Christ. And it's of the mystery. The Greek word for mystery is mysterion. That's where we get our word for mystery. And the mystery is Christ. The mystery is always Christ in the New Testament. The idea that Christ reconciles everybody to himself. That's a mystery. But it's revealed in Christ. 
So I, I have down here horizontal uh, reconciliation. I think the idea here is that God reconciles us to himself through Christ, and then he reconciles us to one another by, by us being knit together in love, and that knitting together in love leads us to the riches of, of overflowing of faculties of understanding, that we're able to think straightly again, and that helps us understand that, that it's more than knowledge, that we really understand what the mystery is, which is Christ, and Christ is all in all. So we have the godly goal is, is comfort and encouragement in Christ. And then we look at the next verse, uh, and, and I've titled this The Transcendent Treasure. Uh, so the treasure is Christ. Uh, so it's interesting in, uh, in verse 3, at the end of verse 2, and, and, and verse 3, we have kind of a reiteration of Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him where we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ for this I toil, and so forth. Him we proclaim what? Warning and teaching. So we have these two things, teaching and warning. So we have the treasure, the transcendent treasure, the treasure that transcends time and space and everything, and people groups is Christ. And we have teaching about this treasure, and Paul's great at this. When he mentions Christ, often he'll give a little parenthetical statement of some doctrine. And here we have that in, in, uh, in the third verse of chapter 2. So the mystery of God is Christ, and, and, and he says here in verse 3, in whom, by the way, Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And again, I think this speaks to the, to the Gnostics of the time. It's like, no, your knowledge is not in your chakras. It's not in your, your weird you know, serpent wrapped around your spinal cord and your third eye or any of that stuff. True knowledge and true wisdom is in Christ. And, and by the way, all wisdom and all knowledge is in Christ. So, by the way, the treasures are said to be hidden in Christ. If they're hidden in Christ, they're also revealed in Christ. Have you thought about that? If the treasures are all hidden in Christ, he's the one that can reveal them, and he does. And he reveals those, and those treasures are this. By the, word, by the way, the word for treasure in the Greek is, is the thesaurus. So the next time you use a thesaurus, you can know that that means a treasure, of, uh, a treasure of words, I guess. But this is a better treasure. This is the treasure which is Christ, and in him all Wisdom and all knowledge are found in Christ. They're not found in some, some odd, you know, uh, pantheistic religion. They're not found in some, some, some weird, you know, kind of uh, reincarnation idea. They're found in Christ. And then we get a warning. In verse 4, we get a warning. The warning about the wayward. Okay, and here's the warning. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. I like the ESV's translation here. I think it's, it does a good job. The, the word for deceive means to come alongside that which is right or reasonable. Uh, it's it's paralogizomai, to, 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 to kind of come alongside with some kind of parallel idea on how things work. Another gospel, in other words. And, and we're deceived by that because people make plausible arguments. The word for plausible arguments, uh, I think in, in the NIV it says fine-sounding arguments. I think that's a good translation as well. But, um, but this word uh, means uh, things that are plausible sounding, meaning that eh, that could be right. You know, maybe, maybe I do have like seven you know, flowers along my spine that are rotating around and taking energy in and out. Well, that really doesn't sound very plausible to me, actually. But it, but it might to some. And it's also persuasive, and it's also false. Okay, so this, this word means these three things, plausible, persuasive, and false. So he's warning. He says, look, I'm telling you this stuff. I'm telling you that the wisdom and knowledge are in Christ because 
you need to be careful about people that are trying to show you wisdom and knowledge somewhere other than Christ. And so he says, be careful because these things sound good. You know, they sound plausible. They, they, they're persuasive. And this has been happening ever since the beginning of time. What does Satan say? Well, did God really say that? You know, he didn't really say that. And then Satan uses God's word and twists him around. We need to be careful of this. Okay, well, to wrap up here, let's talk about the fruits of faithfulness. I think now we get to, uh, to verse 5, and we see that um, we have some fruits of faithfulness. Paul says, For I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in the spirit. That's a, a common statement of Paul's, that he's, he's, maybe he's not there, but he's thinking about them, he's praying for them. And he's rejoicing to see two things, their orderliness and their faithfulness. Their firmness and faithfulness. Now, the word for orderliness is the word taxis, which means um, we get um, uh, taxonomy. Uh, anybody know what that means? It's when you order things in a very orderly way. Um, uh, the, the, the taxonomy of, of animals, you know, how things are, are orderly and well put together. He's saying that he's rejoicing. He's seeing them, and he's rejoicing. Um, he's rejoicing at their orderliness. Now, I think, you know, this is something that I don't really know what to say. I don't want to say too much. I don't want to say too little about this because it's important to have orderliness. And I think that I love this church because you value that. Um, I think we need to be orderly. God tells us how to be orderly. Uh, when we get together, when we live our life, when we treat other people, there's, there's a way God orders his creation. He's told us what it is. And I think that he blesses those who believe him. And, and believe what he says about the orderliness. And I don't want to say too much about this, but I, I love the way uh, the families are here, uh, how um, the family unit is respected as God's nucleus of his church. And, uh, and I really, really appreciate that. And I think that um, I personally rejoice by seeing that. And I think God does. And, and bless you for that. Uh, please try to remain orderly. Um, and also, I think that goes along with this idea of firmness and faith. It's not an accident that these two things are, are uh, in opposition to one another, opposition, not opposition. They both help describe one another. The orderliness is firmness of faith. By being firm in our faith, it helps us be orderly. When we're orderly, it helps us be firm in our faith. You have a question? No, sorry. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, feel free to ask questions, by the way. Uh, I was scared for a minute. I thought you... Yeah. Um, but, but, but our orderliness and firmness, uh, that's the fruits of faithfulness. Okay? So he says, he says, the firmness of your faith in Christ. That is, that is what uh, Paul's rejoicing at. And again, when we look at applications, I think we can rejoice uh, at one another when we see this. And, and we should be, uh, realize that our orderliness and our faithfulness are a blessing to others. Right? Others rejoice when they see that. So... Um, remember, it's not all about us. It's about what we do for the kingdom as well. So I know, for me at least, uh, when I think of you, I smile. You know, when we pray for you guys, it, it, it brings joy to my heart knowing that you're all out here and we're blessed to be here with you. So uh, finally, we have the wonderful walk. And we get our imperative mood verb. We've talked about this before, about the two Greek verbs, the indicative and the imperative. The indicative is a statement of, of just reality, what, what is, a statement of facts. The imperative mood is, is a command. So we have our command here, and our command is to, uh, to what? What do you think our command is here? Hmm? I heard something over here. What is it? It's really easy. 
not a trick question. Alex, what are you pointing at? Right, continue. Well, the word is actually walk, uh, but, but live your life is walk. The word is peripateo. We've talked about this word before. That means as you go about, right? I memorized the Greek word by thinking about going around the perimeter of my patio, peripateo. It, means, it just means as you're going about doing what you're doing, right? And that's why the NIV translates it, uh, continue to live. It says continue to live because it's a present imperative verb, meaning, and it has an ongoingness to it. It means not just to do it one time, but it means to continue to do it. So continue to live is actually a very good translation. Um, in the ESV, it says, um, uh, from actually the body of with your spirit rejoicing, uh, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, so walk in him. So walk in him. So that's, that's the main verb, and that's the imperative mood verb. And then we have these four participles that go along with the verb explaining the verb. Now, this is really exciting. The first, the first participle to describe what our walk is, what, what does this walk look like? It's a wonderful walk. What does it look like? It looks like this, having been rooted. The word for rooted is rizo. Uh, that's where we get our, our word for, for roots, uh, rhizomes. And um, what's interesting about this, this verb, this, this, this participle, is that it's adjectival, meaning it modifies the walk. How do we walk? We walk realizing that we're rooted. Part of how we do our walk, how we, how we walk in him, is to be rooted. And the, the verb is a passive, so we don't root ourselves. Passive, you know, active and passive verbs. Active, we do it ourselves. Passive is done to us. This is passive. God's the one that roots us. And not only is it passive, it's the perfect tense verb, which means that it's already been done. Perfect verbs, we stand in the, in the present reality of a past-completed action. It's a perfect tense, and it's a passive. It's a perfect passive, which means... Having been rooted, and I like the NASB, the New American Standard says, uses having been. I like that language. We've already been rooted. So part of the way we walk in, we walk in Christ, our walk is recognizing that God has done it. It's not like we have to go try to root ourselves, right? God has rooted us. Our walk in Him is recognizing that He is the one who's done it. He has rooted us. He's done it perfectly, and, it's, and, and we are the passive recipients of being rooted, the second thing is another passive verb, being built upon. Recognize that we're being built upon. We're not doing the building. God's building upon us. I mean, this is great news for the believer. Part of walking in Christ is to recognize that we don't do this ourselves. It's God who roots us. It's God who builds upon us. It's God who establishes us. Another passive verb, being established. God is the one who establishes us in our faith, and we, we matured through him. The one participle, the one verb that's not a passive is the next one, which is giving thanks. See, that's our job. All right? God is the one who's done everything on the cross. He's done everything for us on the cross. His grace is sufficient. What is our job? Our job is to recognize that, and when you recognize what God's done for us, I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, I fall on my face at the foot of the cross saying, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for me. And so as we come to Christ, as we walk in him, we do so overflowing with thanksgiving. By the way, the word for thanksgiving is Eucharisto, and it's overflowing with thanksgiving. And we do all this just as you receive Christ. So finally, I want to just leave you with this. How did you receive Christ? First of all, have you received Christ? And, and, and if you haven't, you don't have to raise your hand, um, but if you haven't received Christ, um, this is something that you need to do. 
right? Jesus said two things. Repent, believe the gospel. That's, that's, we're commanded to do that. Every human being is commanded to do this. So, for those of you, and I know there are many who have, because I see your smiling faces when you think about this, those of you who have received Christ, how did that happen? Let's just kind of reflect on that. As Christians, we like to hear people's testimonies a lot, right? How did that happen? Were you like Paul? You know, were you fighting against God? Going and just, like, just like going as hard as you could against him, against Christ? And did God take you, on, and when you were on your way to, 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 to sin and destruction and clobber you over the head on the middle of a road and appear to you in a bright light and make you blind and just and arrest you? Is that how you received Christ? Or did you receive Christ maybe like Timothy, who had a grandmother and mother who loved God and taught him from the time he was young, and he, he always trusted Christ? Everybody's salvation experience is different. We can't impose our salvation experience on somebody else. We can say, oh, well, you've got to you know, do this. You know, I know when we, uh, when we became members uh, of our church a long time ago, when Sue and I first got married, we were members of Riverside Bible Church. And uh, uh, the process was to talk to the elders and give your testimony. And, and you know, I gave my testimony um, that, uh, you know, there was a point in my life where, I, you know, I don't know. I, when, I was, when I was little, I professed Christ, but I, I'm not sure that I really understood the full import of that. I think I was, at the minimum... You know, terribly backslidden and probably not saved. Uh, and there was a point in my life when, I mean, it was like Paul. God got a hold of me and he arrested me and he shook me and said, you know, I am God. And I just, I totally give up. Like, I did not know this. And I'm sorry and I will, uh, you know, and I repented and I trusted Christ. They asked my wife. You know, so I gave my testimony. They asked my wife, what about your salvation experience? And I We'd talked about this before. We were getting married, and, and obviously, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we weren't married yet. But I was kind of curious. Yeah, how, you know, how did you, you know, listening very closely? And she thought about it for a long time. She said, you know, I've always known that I'm a child of God. And I thought, wow, that's really something. So there's no road to Damascus or anything like that? She's like, I've just always known I'm a child of God. I think maybe that's like Timothy. People get mad at Billy Graham's wife. Well, you know, if you're old like me, you remember Billy Graham. So, you know, he's, he's, you know, Billy Graham is a great preacher. But his wife, people would get mad at, at her because they would ask, when were you saved? And they want to know the date, the location, the GPS coordinates, and the, you know, the, 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 the time based on Greenwich uh, time, right? When were you saved? And we want to know all about it. And she would say that same thing. I don't know when I was saved. I, I think I always have known I was saved. People get mad at her. Yeah, it doesn't count. It's not a good answer. Well, you know, it is a good answer. Well, my question to you is, what was it like when you received Christ? What did you do? And, and maybe some of us, it's like when you realize that you received Christ. I mean, there's a point in my wife's life where she realized this, right? I mean, she's, and thought about it and, and understood it, and, and it became very real to her. What was it like for you? Whatever it was like for you, that's how you should continue to walk in him. And, and my assertion is, is that receiving Christ means trusting Christ. And so we trust Christ, and that's, that's what it means as you've received Christ, so walk in him. It means to trust him like you did when you first realized who he was, to continue to trust him. And we have our passage from Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. So we have this wonderful passage that talks about reconciliation it talks about the 
the five kind of things, what the, the struggle, what that looks like, what the goal is, what the treasure is, you know, what our response to that is. And I just want to share with you uh, today that, that uh, I, I just, I implore you, I, I, I urge you, uh, everything, all the words that I could think of is to trust Christ. You know, we have to trust Christ. There's nobody else to trust. You can't trust yourself. You can't trust your own efforts. You can't trust your own reason. You can't trust yoga. You can't trust anything. You have to trust Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for this wonderful passage that you give us. And, uh, Lord, I know we just scratched the surface. And and I pray, God, that your spirit would um, take over the processing of this passage in our hearts. Lord, I would pray that you gift us with the abundance of faculties of understanding, that you open our minds so that we can think straightly, God, so that we can understand the true riches of Christ, all wisdom, all knowledge in Christ. God, I pray that as we do this, as we knit our hearts together um, in love, God, that you would bless this congregation. Father, that you would have us realize that we, are ha- we already have been rooted that the, work on, the finished work of Christ on the cross has rooted us, Father. You have established us. And God, we offer our thanksgiving back to you. Father, I pray that as we continue to live today, uh, this week, if, if you would be so gracious to grant us life, that we do so um, trusting you. And God, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.